You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It's Bank Holiday, Sunday, the 3rd of December. It's now time, the time now is 10.04. Welcome to the Weekend World Show with Ahsan Ahmadi. Listen to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile and online. 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from the Beth of Fatou Mosque in Morton. The Weekend World Show, a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective. Promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and enlightenment. A message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views and stories by phoning us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Co-hosting with me as usual is Waleed Ahmed, the Chief Librarian at the Battle for Mosque here in Morden, UK's largest mosque. Assalamu alaikum, Waleed. Wa alaikum salam. How are you feeling? I'm feeling a bit under the weather today. Mm, well, uh, I'm not too... Oh, I'm not feeling too bad either, but that's old age. Is it old age? Yeah. Yes. My, mine yeah. are the winter gloomy weather. That's what's causing right. my uh, under-the-weather feeling. A bit of a flu, but never mind. We'll brave on and soldier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> Garrison Kyler, um, Christian uh, thinker, mm-hmm. uh, says, anyone who thinks sitting in a church can make you a Christian must also think that sitting in a garage can make you a car. <laughs> Quite a good <laughs> quote, I thought. Um, yes. Really? This is in, uh, in light of the latest census uh, on religion, uh, says that Christianity now numbers have diminished uh, with the rise of other faiths. Uh, why is Christianity failing in Britain, do you think? Well, uh, I think some say it's inevitable because uh, of certain doctrines that it uh, promotes, mm. which in an increasingly uh, literate world uh, are becoming uh, more fantasy than reality. And that's one of the, re- the reasons that people are moving away from Christianity. Mm. Um, and also the statement that Garrison uh, Kyler has made uh, mm. is a very salutary one. Uh, it means that it's not uh, it means that what really counts uh, is not labels, but um, but deeds and your conduct. And this is something that we also, as Muslims, have been reminded of, members of the Ambly Muslim community, Indeed. where uh, we are constantly being referred to the words of the founder of the community, yeah. where he says that just becoming a member of the community uh, does not... Uh, guarantee you salvation. What no. guarantees you salvation is your good righteousness deeds, yeah, and good deeds. Yes. Indeed, yeah. And uh, I presume, um, with, with this in mind, the Western world particularly has become very modern and, and sophisticated and they feel as if there's no need for a God now. Mm, mm. Uh, so probably that is also creeping in as well. Well, uh, that is uh, very much uh, being directed by... Uh, an increasing focus on materialism. Mm. But materialism also is something that uh, people are realizing it's not the be-all and end of all everything. There's a lot of dissatisfaction. Suicide rates are rising. Mm. Depression is rising. So there is a lot of um, angst. um, And people are trying to look for something uh, that will give them uh, satisfaction and peace. Yeah. What about the actions of the church as well? Because uh, they've had a lot of bad 
publicity in terms of paedophilia, treatment of children, uh, and, and lots of other things. Mm. Uh, and, and certainly that certainly has not helped their cause. And it's come to the fore now because of the where public is now and the way social mm. media is and everything, mm. access to information and all that. Um, so it's a reminder for us all, isn't it, for all faiths, that uh, unless you're your actions reflect what you are preaching. Yes. Then this could be your downfall. Yes, but I think also there's a, there's a certain constituency mm. that is anti-religion and that wants to malign and uh, discredit religion and uh, and and promote. Uh, I was going to say capitalism, but materialism. Sure. Um, and there is that element as well that we need to remember. Mm. Um, in the end, uh, we all accept the fact that uh, religion is something that is a force for good yes. if uh, if applied and uh, understood correctly and should not be rejected altogether. Absolutely. By the religions, it's their duty to present their faith in mm. a way that is acceptable to people. Yes. And when it's yes. not, as you intimated early, yeah. if it's not presented in that way, people will turn away yeah. from if it. If it's reduced to fairy stories, yes. then, yeah. uh, then obviously it's going to be rejected. In, indeed. Uh, we'll be discussing that with Mahmoud Rafiq, we'll be on with shortly. Okay. Right. And after some news review items with him, we'll do the faith in focus. I think you're going to be looking at the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him as seen by yes. the eminent scholars, uh, eminent yeah. people who are non-Muslims. Mm. What about after the 11 o'clock news? What have you got? Well, there's been a census of religion and faith that Christianity is now a minority faith amongst uh, Britons. Uh, uh, I mean, this is something that we've just been discussing. Other faiths have seen a rise. Uh, mm. That's, uh, I would say, a bit strange. Is Britain no longer a Christian country is the question uh, we will be asking. Uh, Sheikh Rahman and Dr. Uh, Dr. Sandra Ismail uh, will be joining us to discuss this. Indeed. Uh, I presume the other question would be, if it's no longer a Christian country, is it, is it a non-religious country or is it being overtaken by other mm. religions? Mm. That, that's something mm. we can discuss. And uh, sports, I presume World Cup is in the... Uh, yes, the oh yes, okay. It's, it's like a bit like Ramzan, isn't it? Is it? Uh, <laughs> it reminds me of where, where your attention is yeah. focused on one particular yeah. part for a whole month. Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, it's reached the knockout stage with some surprises and some very interesting results. Mm. Uh, Shahid and Saif will join us. Sorry, Saif. Oh, Saif. Okay, Saif will be joining us uh, to discuss the uh, latest. Yeah, and uh, also Pakistan are touring. Uh, so England are touring Pakistan. Yes, for the first time in 17 years. So that's a high-scoring yes, test match. Surprising, <laughs> yes. Yeah, but England are doing very well at the moment. Okay, think, yeah. they have uh, 300 to Pakistan. A target of 300, is it? I'll find out. <laughs> okay, I think it's something like it's that. Something yes. like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. That's great. We live, inshallah, an interesting show to in store for all our listeners. Anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning 0208 687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. You can listen to Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile, or live stream it on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, Willie, we're going to go to our first segment, which is the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. <coughs> Right, Willie. Mm. Uh, 
The Guardian reports schools call for an end to archaic daily worship following UK census results. This is the religious census. Daily worship in schools should end according to teachers and education experts who have been branded. The legal requirement archaic now that England is not predominantly Christian. The 2021 census revealed last week that for the first time, fewer than half the population in England and Wales described themselves as Christian, while 37% said they had no religion. Currently, all state schools are legally required to provide an act of collective worship that is broadly Christian every day. Uh, many heads admit privately they no longer stick to this, preferring to run less religious assemblies more relevant to their diverse student bodies. Yeah, I think the, the, the schools which are religious-based, Roman Catholic schools, Protestant schools, they still run these assemblies. The other schools, I think, very much it's more of a general assembly rather than mm -hmm. a religious one. Anyway, joining us this morning from Kingston is Mahmoud Rafiq, who recently joined the political arena by standing as a local councillor there for the Lib Dems. And uh, Mahmoud has been uh, a very... Uh, 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 a spokesman for the MD Muslim community and working behind the scenes as well uh -huh. and uh, doing a lot for the community. Assalamu alaikum, Mahmoud. Assalamu uh, Welcome to our show. Um, it's a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. That's quite okay. Mahmoud, uh, <coughs> this, this census that has taken place, uh, is UK and is stating that Christianity is now a minority some schools at the Guardian is saying are calling out for there should be no assembly, religious assemblies now because it's no longer a religious community. But but the census also says that other religions are on the increase. What do you make of uh, of of the census? And uh, what are we heading towards a non-faith nation in Britain? I I think to know. Firstly, to know, I think the census has brought up some interesting questions, not not just only on the faith side, it's also hmm. brought up uh, uh, demographic is in, um, for instance, they've highlighted in Birmingham, for instance, the ethnic minorities will have a more bigger uh, uh, population uh, than the white population. So I think England or Great Britain is changing. Um, on the faith side, so obviously it's brought up this question of, uh, you know, are people identifying as uh, as Christian? Mm. I think the Financial Times did a big story on this yesterday, where they talked about that maybe people aren't identifying themselves as you know, going to the sort of traditional Christians or going to the church, mm. etc. But on the flip side, the, they were talking about you know when people are in, especially we've got cost of living crisis, other issues, people do start to start turning back to faith. So my personal view is, uh, I think religious education does have a part to play in. Uh, when I was growing up, um, I, it was good for me to learn from other interfaith, uh, because it, it's not just they focus on uh, Christianity. Uh, yeah, if you look at the syllabus, it's, it's quite interfaith. It focuses on all of the major religions. So for people to live in this country, I do think uh, religious ed education needs to continue. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to have that interfaith element uh, so that we can all live uh, in tolerance of all of the different faiths in the world. 
Yeah, you make some good points there. Um, and in terms of, uh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, rise of uh, faith of other communities and the rise of immigration, is it just that faith within the Christian groups has declined, but the other faiths are still increasing? And also the point that you make about the works that the faith groups do during this pandemic, particularly it was the faith groups led by the Christians and other faiths, Islam as well, and Hindus, uh, and the Sikhs, who did a lot of work for the community. So they they do bring a positive uh, aspect to the lives of British people, don't they? I think so, they do. I think, obviously, if you look at the history, uh, there is some, you know, uh, all of the faiths um, in, the, in in different periods, but uh, sometimes give faith a bad you know, people are trying to get away from the colonial uh, past. Hmm. I think, you know, obviously, um, all of the, as you said, the states are now trying to, um, you know, uh, cost of living. Um, you know, obviously, there's a cost of uh, um, the energy crisis. Uh, especially how polarized the world is. You know, when you look at America, you look at everywhere. Everyone's trying to look for, uh, and I think the problem is in all of the states, sadly, politics has got involved, especially if you look at globally in the US, etc. I think if uh, you know, um, you know, Islam uh, or teaches us, uh, if possible, can keep um, uh, faith separated, uh, um, like in the US Constitution. Uh, mm. But, um, people should be free to worship, but the uh, bring faith and politics mix the, the two. I think the world would be a much better place, and it will give faith that space to operate in, so they can t talk about the moral side. Of mm. Before we leave, comes in with a question. I just want to apologise. I think there's a slight break up with your phone, uh, Mahmoud. Uh, this is, uh, I don't know if it's to, to with, the, with the area, but uh, apologies to our listeners. Will it? Uh, Mahmoud, do you think that there is a cause for concern when we find that there's an increasing trend of people who say that they have no religion? Are we as a society diminished uh, because uh, there is an increasing number of people who's, who are not religious? I do think, uh, I mean, this is my personal view, because obviously I, I'm a Muslim and I believe in uh, God. So I, I see the value of it, you know, the spiritual side of it. But over the years, sadly, because of uh, different issues um, in the um, uh, Catholic Church, etc., people have moved away from uh, the traditional setup. But I, I think, you know, when I talk to people, um, uh, they tell me, uh, I, I think this is my own. Of, uh, talking to general people, everyone says to go to church, but they still believe in a god. So I do think, or the Christian, um, or the if you look at the predominant religion in this country, Christianity, mm. I the uh, the outreach, uh, meeting um, the congregation, that those aspects have gone. Whilst um, other religions, like uh, you know the Islamic sects, the reason they're on the rise is they're building. More. They're creating that space where communities can gather. And sadly, you know, when I look at the, the I've been to a few interfaith events at uh, churches. Um, that, I mean, you know, when I come to the mosque, literally, there's not a um, this uh, there's no place to sit whilst I go to a church. There's only pensioners there. So, mm. 
I, I do think that, that there is a role for the you know, clear, uh, the priests or the imams to play, right? They have to encourage people. They have to create that community spirit. Uh, and if you don't have that sort of community spirit, people won't um, want to come to the uh, to the place of worship. So if you're not welcoming, uh, you're going to lose that. So yeah. What about uh, just last question on this? Um, with this rise in other faiths and decline in Christianity, will this give the right, the far right, uh, more ammunition? to fight their cause and uh, <coughs> speak against the immigration of other people and, and it, it, it almost towards lending towards their agenda? It, it could be. I, I just personally think the far right are not even religious themselves, right? Uh, I think they're, they're all based on a race issue right? mm. uh, uh, because uh, ultimately, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're still the, the white population aspects of the sort of but it, it does feed into that narrative for them, right? They, they'll look at any, they'll clutch at any of these sort of. Uh, yeah. Um, oh yeah, it, anything to fight their cause, and they'll use it to their advantage, even if it's twisting the rules a bit or twisting the truth a bit. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next story, will it? Uh, the Manchester Evening News reports that the lawyer Nazar Afzal, he was the he was the chief prosecutor, wasn't he, uh, mm, one time? Mm. Uh, says Royal Aid, who resigned, also asked him about his heritage. So the news is leading lawyer and former chief prosecutor. Nazir Afzal says Royal Aid Lady Susan Hussey, who resigned after a racism row, also asked him about his heritage at Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. She's a, okay, she's, she's a serial. <laughs> serial. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Right, anyway. Um, um, uh, what, yes. else, what else did they say? Well, they said that meanwhile, the black domestic abuse campaigner who was asked where she really came from at a royal reception, reception has described what she experienced as a form of abuse. Ngozi Fulani, founder of the charity Sister Space, uh, expressed her shock at her treatment by the late Queen's lady-in-waiting, Lady Susan, but uh, said she has yet to be contacted by Buckingham Palace to discuss the incident. Uh, Lady Susan, uh, the Prince of Wales, his uh, 83-year-old godmother, resigned from the royal household and apologised after she repeatedly uh, challenged Miss Ms. Fulani when she said she was British at the Queen's Consul's reception, highlighting violence against women and girls. Mm. Uh, what do you make of this story? Accusation of institutional racism is being made at the royal family. Is asking someone their origin racist? Yeah, I, I think in this context, uh, I mean, you have to look at the whole transcript. It, it wasn't that, um, it wasn't just, uh, there were a number of things that Lady Hussey um, sadly did that were uh, not right. But uh, I think she sort of invaded this lady's personal uh, space by moving it and look at her name. And then repeatedly asking her constantly uh, about where she's from, right? Because when, initially, when she was asked where she's from, the lady replied, "I'm from Hackney," mm. and said, eventually got down to, "Where are your people from?" Uh, and to be honest, growing up in this country, I, I've also um, come 
I mean, we've all experienced it. We're constantly asked, where are you from, right? You can, uh, uh, so, so obviously in today's day age where, you know, things have moved on, mm. I think a person of this uh, senior rank uh, and someone who's worked uh, in this role, you know, her whole role is uh, to, um, uh, you know, to be around the Queen and to, to you know, meet with people, be that diplomat. Mm. Get it so wrong. Uh, I mean, she's there as a PR person, and the question that's been asked is: uh, Has she been trained uh, into the protocols of of uh, receiving people in in such an environment? You are, after all, the host on behalf of the king or the monarch at the time. But I mean, she, the questions that she asked, she was given answers to. But it was not the answers this lady was wanted, and so she kept on pursuing. Uh, I mean, I go to events, and uh, I often ask people, you know, where, uh, where do you origin from? Uh, what's your background? That type of question. And that's it. You don't need to pursue any further than that. So the question that arises that Meghan Markle made a complaint about racism in the royal family. This more or less backs it up, doesn't it? Is this the sort of thing that, that would have happened to her as well? Essentially, because uh, you have to remember this uh, lady, Susan Hussey's role was to also, she, she, uh, the Queen appointed her to train or, or uh, to keep Meghan and the protocols of living in the role. Hmm. So it does feed into that. Obviously, that'll be, can't speculate that, uh, you know, but Meghan did make some, uh, <clears throat> uh, some allegations about the royal family, you know, when it came to the colour of the, uh, <clears throat> the child's, um, um, I've forgotten his yeah. name. Uh, Prince Harry. Uh, no, Prince, Prince Harry's, yeah. Son, you know, what colour do you, etc. Uh, and to be honest, uh, to Archie. Know, Archie. Archie, yes. Well, he's up to date with it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm terrible with names nowadays. Yeah. Okay. Mm. But you mentioned institutional um, racism. I mean, if you think about it, the fire department um, of UK has just been, uh, um, you know, um, uh, there's Indeed. been a, uh, a report being done. The police is also. So, so it does look uh, a number of institutions have, you know, despite, you know, UK moving forward. Mm. I think the reason this is deeply damaging for the royal family is one of the other roles the new king, uh, upon becoming king, he did was first meeting he held was with the Commonwealth to say, you know, I'm the king of all the Commonwealth. Yeah. And the second thing he did was all invite all all major religions, faith, etc., to say, you know, I'm the king for everyone. And this sort of, you know, this sort of goes against that sort of mm. view and sort of portrays the view I'm just for the elite white people yeah. rather than I mean, it's often said that uh, racism only comes from the white direction towards the coloured direction. And uh, in that environment, we don't know what else goes on. And maybe what's highlighted by this incident is that 
this is what goes on. Mm. They look at uh, the uh, people of other races differently. Whereas mm. in our classroom, we might speak of English, but there's there's not that environment of race mm. of uh, looking at them as lesser or higher people. Do you, do you don't think it's a flaw of human nature? You don't think that this oh. kind of racism exists it, among among the coloured uh, fraternity as well? Uh, it, it can do, but it's not. I think it's less racist, but more to do with nationalism. Mm. We are more nationalistic in India, Pakistan, Ireland, England, you know, mm. uh, England, France, that type of thing. Uh, that that happens, but racism for the color of the skin is mostly, I think, coming from the white direction. That doesn't mean there aren't any black. And yes, human beings are flawed. All mm. of us are flawed. Mm. And I'm sure within ourselves we are uh, racist as well mm. in one way or the other. Right, let's move on to the last story. The Conservatives slumped to a disappointing... This will interest Mahmood a lot. It's a political story. The Conservatives slumped to a disappointing result in Chester, reports Sky. Labour has comfortably won the Chester by-election and uh, the, the public... Uh, sorry, the public vote since Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were forced out of number 10. Samantha Dixon retained the seat for her party, 17,309 votes and 60.8% share uh, and nearly 11,000 more than the Conservative. Labour leader Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, said his party had offered a positive plan for the future compared to the government who was worn out and tired. Let's have a quick listen to that election win. Samantha <coughs> Dixon, Labour Party, It's to be noted that Boris Johnson has announced that he will stand as an MP at the next election. Uh, Mahmoud, is this uh, result urging bon Johnson to come back in again? And because Sunak is uh, not that popular. Um, yeah, seems that obviously on Sunak, the jury is still out, right? It's yep. still early days. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, the first big hurdle he had was the mini budget, uh, which was you know, well received by the financial market. And the background is obviously Liz Truss's budget was disastrous, right? Mm. The market. So, so I think with Rishi Sunak, the, the jury is still out. But, uh, but I think the bigger question is uh, this: usually in midterms, you do see a, a change. Uh, people do do this protest vote. But what was interesting was the, the size of the swing vote, right? So it was like 17, 13% uh, uh, swing towards uh, Labour. So that's a that's a but, big increase, yeah. Yeah. So, so that was quite a big in, increase in a by-election. So, so I think for Labour, it is good news, and they've been quietly um, optimistic. And for them, they've got the feeling of, you know, could this you know, eventually, when there is election in 2024, could it be like the Blair uh, where they come in for the next sort of decade? Mm. Obviously, for the Conservatives, the hope is that Rishi can uh, turn it around. And the other interesting thing is uh, some people, you know, even within the Tory party, that, that 13 of um, MPs have already decided to stand down. Sajid Javed being one of 
big mm, name. Big name. So, so, so even the, within the, and they've got a deadline for Monday where the numbers could increase. So it looks like you know, a lot of people in the Tory party, and when I meet people on the ground, a lot of them have already given up or resigned to the fact that they're going to lose their seat or um, or they're going to do really badly in the election. Mm, mm. Uh, so it looks like uh, the Labour, you know, it's uh, something, it's all to win for. And, you know, if they lose, it'll be, uh, you know, uh, I, I think, the end of Keir Starmer. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting to see how the other parties can um, sort of pick up... Uh, well, where, where does that put the Lib Dems? Uh, what what sort of uh, impact has this had, or what are the talks around the Lib Dems uh, regarding this victory of the Labour with this big swing? So I think for the Lib Dems, uh, uh, I mean, their, their vote uh, share did increase. It wasn't a big increase; but it did increase. But I think um, Lib Dems were, uh, you know, were really punished in the 2012 uh, election where they lost, uh, you know, countless uh, MPs hmm. because. The coalition. So what what a, a number of analysts are saying is that maybe in the next election it could lead to another outright Labour victory, and maybe the uh, Labour might need a coalition partner. Oh, don't um, talk about coalitions. What look what happened at the last time when they went with the Tories? <laughs> uh, we're not going to have Nick Clegg coming in again, are we? No, 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 no. <laughs> Nick is happy in the private sector working at Meta. Uh, he's back in London, by the way, but oh, no. he's, he, he, uh, so he's, he's definitely out. But, right. but it's fascinating to see what happens. Uh, I, I think people are looking for a change. Uh, mm. And at the moment, it just looks like Labour seems to be doing... And you've got to remember, in the next month, we've got a wonderful month of... Uh, um, virtually every day, there's some industrial action between the teachers, uh, mm. between the... Uh, nurses, uh, the rail, transport, etc. Um, there's still a lot of issues around, you know, e- even within the EU since Brexit as well. So you've got a lot of, and people are, and the parties are very polarized. So you've got the Tory party, so a number of things, challenges the country facing could be resolved by having a better deal with EU. Mm. But they're adamant they that deal with EU. So it just seems strange that. You know that quick you can resolve it, but they're just saying, no, we don't want that. Indeed. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and good luck with your election. Just one last question before you go. How has uh, being on the campaign, uh, you, you've done it for the first time, um, standing as a local councillor. Uh, what was that like? And uh, are you going to go back in again next year, next time? Um, so it was very tough, actually. So uh, I, I thought it would be quite easy, just a few leaflets, but it was much more, um, you know, um, it was, I mean, for some reason, uh, it turned into everyone uh, fighting. So, uh, so so it was a lot more intense, mm. I thought. Uh, and on the doorsteps, there were just a lot more issues. Uh, there were a lot of disgruntled uh, people talking about cost of living, a lot of frustration out there. Yeah. And, you know, as a local councillor, it's hard to address all of them. Some some were national issues. Exactly. Um, some were uh, linked to cost of living. Some were, you know, issues that you know, have been last been sort of brewing for the last five six years. So, I it I personally it was very tough. But, mm. but overall, uh, but 
Well, the important thing is, has it wet your appetite or yes. has it completely turned dampened you off? Dampened it, dampened it off. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, um, well, dampened it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and that, was, that wasn't just the rain, was it? Yeah, no, it, it wasn't normal. The, the only good thing for me was, I was like, fortunate enough, I came second being all the sort of main parties, so yes. that was positive out of it. But it was very uh, and on the doorsteps, talking to everyone, it, it, it is uh, much harder than I thought. Indeed, and a lot of dirty campaigning going on as well. So, yeah. anyway, uh, good luck in the future, and thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your views and thoughts with us. Thank you. <coughs> right, Lisa. Yeah. Time for us to go to our next segment, Faith in Focus. In the last edition of the program, we completed our account of the life of the Holy Prophet. When we say completed it, right, that's a, a, I put that in inverted commas because we only just touched the surface. Yeah. yeah? Uh, but uh, however, um, that took the best part of two years to cover. Today we will look at how those... Uh, at how those non-Muslims who have taken the trouble of studying his life has said about him. So firstly, uh, one of the features of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu greatness, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, greatness is that he was able to achieve so much when he started, uh, when he started with so little and in surroundings that offered so little. Can you tell us what has been said about this aspect of his life? Well, that is true. Um, we have Michael Hart, uh, who put the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, at the top of his list as the man who had the greatest influence on human history. He says, and I quote, the majority of the persons in, uh, in this analysis, in his analysis of uh, listing uh, all the great people of the world and uh, uh, putting and ranking them, he said the, uh, the majority of the persons in this analysis had the advantage of being born and raised in centers of civilization, highly cultured or politically pivotal nations. Muhammad, however, was born in the year 570 in the city of Mecca in southern Arabia, at that time a backward area of the world, far from the centers of trade, art, and learning. Often at the age of six, he was reared in modest surroundings. Islamic tradition tells us that he was illiterate. His economic position improved when at the age of 25 he married a wealthy widow. Nevertheless, as he approached 40, there was little outward indication that he was a remarkable person. In a similar uh, vein, uh, William Durant. Now, William Durant uh, is an American writer, historian, and philosopher, and he became best known for his work, The Story of Civilization, which contains 11 volumes and details the history of Eastern and Western uh, civilizations. Now, he writes, in the years 565, Justinian, a Roman emperor, died master of a great empire. Five years later, Muhammad was born into a poor family in a country three-quarters desert, sparsely peopled by nomad tribes whose total wealth could hardly have furnished the sanctuary of St. Sophia, a cathedral, a big cathedral in, uh, in, in the Roman Empire. No one in those years would have dreamed that within a century, these nomads would conquer half of Byzantine Asia, 
all Persia and Egypt, most of North Africa, and be on the way to Spain. The explosion of the Arabian Peninsula into the conquest and conversion of half the Mediterranean world is the most extraordinary phenomena in medieval history, and he puts that uh, as a result of the work of the Holy Prophet, peace Mm. be upon him. He points out that he was illiterate. I mean, that is quite astonishing, Mm. Uh, that he had no formal education, there was no system of schooling. He could not even read or write. Mm. What, 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 have others commented on this aspect of his life? Certainly, uh, Sir Thomas Carlyle picks this up <clears throat> and says, uh, one, uh, we must not forget that he had no school learning. Of the thing we call school learning, none at all. The art of writing was but just introduced into Arabia. It seems to be the true opinion that Muhammad never could write. Life in the desert with his experiences was all his education. Uh, what of this infinite universe he from his dim place with his own eyes and thoughts could take in? So much and no more of it was he to know. Curious if we will reflect on it, this of having no books, except by what he could see for himself or hear of by uncertain rumor of speech in the obscure Arabian desert, he could know nothing. The wisdom that had been before him or at a distance from him in the world was in a manner as good uh, as not there for him. Of the great brother soul's flame beacons through so many lands and times, no one directly communicates with this great soul. He is alone there deep down in the bosom of the wilderness, has to grow up so alone with nature and his own thoughts. And this impact um, on on the world is recorded by J.H. De, uh, Denniser as well. So he's a reputable author. He's written uh, several books. One of them is Emotions as a Basis of Civilization. He says, in the 5th and 6th centuries, the civilized world stood on the verge, verge of chaos. The old emotional cultures that had made civilization possible since they had uh, given to man a sense of unity and reverence for their rulers had broken down, and nothing had been found adequate to take their place. It seemed then that the great civilization we had taken thousands of years to construct was on the verge of disintegration, and that mankind was likely to return to that condition of barbarism where every tribe and sect was against the next, and law and order were unknown. The new sanctions created by Christianity were creating divisions and destruction instead of unity and order. Civilization, like a gigantic tree whose foliage had overreached the world, stood tottering, rotted to the core. Was there any emotional culture that could be brought in to gather mankind once more to unity and to save civilization? It was among the Arabs that the man was born, who was to unite the whole known world of the East and the South. I mean, one of the things, okay, education was not there, uh, but a personal personality mm. comes into play. Yeah. Uh, what have these non-Muslim commentators commented on his personal conduct, or his general behavior? Has there, have any of them commented or admired those qualities? Well, there's so many. Um, uh, see, Sir William Muir, for example, he enca- encapsulates this uh, when he says, uh, and I quote, through... Uh, thorough and complete in all his actions, he took in hand no work without bringing it to a close. The same habit pervaded his manner in social intercourse. If he turned in a conversation towards a friend, he turned not partially, but with his full face and his whole body. 
In shaking hands, he was not the first to withdraw his own, nor was he the first to, to break off in converse with a stranger, nor to turn away his ear. A patriarchal simplicity pervaded his life. His custom was to do everything for himself. If he gave an alms, he would place it with his own hands in that of the petitioner. He aided his wives in their household duties, mended his clothes, tied up the goats, and even cobbled his sandals. His ordinary dress was of plain white cotton stuff, made like his neighbors. He never reclined at meals. Muhammad with his wives lived, as we have seen, in a row of low and homely cottages built upon baked bricks, the apartments separated by walls of palm branches rudely daubed with mud, while curtains of leather or of black cloth or black hair cloth supplied the place of doors and windows. He was to all of easy access, even as the river's bank to him that draws water from it. Embassies and deputations were received with the utmost courtesy and consideration. In the issue of rescripts, bearing on the representations or in other matters of state, Muhammad displayed all the qualification of an able and experienced ruler. What renders this the most strange is that he was never known himself to write. And he goes on to say, a remarkable feature was the urbanity and the consideration with which Muhammad treated even the most insignificant of his followers. Modern, modesty and kindness, patience, self-denial, generosity pervaded his conduct and riveted the affections of all around him. He disliked to say no. If unable to answer a traditional in the, uh, in the affirmative, he preferred silence. He was not known ever to refuse an invitation to the house, even of the meanest, nor to decline a, prefer, a proffered present, however small. He possessed the rare faculty of making each individual in a company think that he was a favored guest. If he met anyone rejoicing at success, he would seize him eagerly and cordially by the hand. With the bereaved and afflicted, he sympathized tenderly. Gentle and unbending, unbending towards little children, he would not disdain to accost a group of them at play with the salutation of peace. He shared his food even in times of scarcity with others and was seditiously solicitous for the personal comfort of everyone about him. A kindly and benevolent disposition pervaded all those illustrations of his character. Muhammad was a faithful friend. He loved Abu Bakr with the close affection of a brother. Ali with the fond partiality of a father. Zad, the freedman, was so strongly attached by the kindness of the Prophet that he preferred to remain at Makkah rather than return home with his own father. I will not leave him, or I will not leave you, he said, clinging to his patron, for you have been a father and mother to me. The friendship of Muhammad survived the death of Zayed, and his son Osama was treated by him with distinguished favor for the father's sake. Usman and Umar were also the objects of a special attachment, and the enthusiasm with which at Udubiyah the Prophet entered into a pledge of the tree and swore that he would defend his beleaguered son-in-law even to the death. It was a signal proof. It was a signal proof of faithful friendship. Numerous other instances of Muhammad's ardent and unwavering regard might be adduced. His affections were in no instance misplaced. They were ever reciprocated by a warm and self-sacrificing love. Yeah, the simplicity comes up very clear from mm -hmm. those uh, readings and his love and affection for others. Um, 
it, it, it was it in terms of his simplicity has that also been a source of much admiration uh, by other writers um yes uh, it has uh, let me just get my notes in order i mean sir thomas carlyle writes uh, muhammad was abstemious and uh, uh, simple in his abode his food and his drink and his clothing and the rest of his life and conditions his uh, food consisted mainly of bread and eats and water he often mended his own clothes and what could be more honorable than this uh, hail muhammad the prophet of rough clothing and food who <coughs> excuse me who strived was active during the day and awake during the night and persisted in promoting the religion of allah he was not the one to covet that which lesser men covet such as rank empire and power he is in truth the prophet of the sublime morals now gandhi also said something similar but i can't find that at the moment okay that's mahatma if you find it we'll love to hear what mahatma gandhi said as well i know he's been very praiseworthy of the holy prophet mm-hmm. in many ways so how how do you see prophet muhammad from from we, we if you see from what he has achieved you would see him as a ruler you know as we talk of the great rulers of the past uh, uh, um yes. empires but but here you're talking about the simplicity of his life so how is he how is he to be seen as a ruler or something else well um he was um, a great ruler and an excellent ruler and uh, there are many features of his being a ruler that have been uh, a source of much admiration for non-muslims uh, and uh, so william muir uh, a biographer and an orientalist a renowned orientalist um, he writes in the exercise of a power absolutely dictatorial muhammad was just and temperate nor was he wanting in moderation towards his enemies when once they had chiefly submitted to his claims the long and obstinate struggle against his pretensions maintained by the inhabitants of makkah might have induced his conqueror to mark his indignation indelible in indelible traces of fire and blood but muhammad accepting a few criminals gathered the universal pardon and nobly casting into oblivion the memory of the past with all its mockery its affronts and persecution he treated even the foremost of his opponents with a gracious and even friendly consideration not less marked was the forbearance shown to abdullah bin ubay and the disaffected citizens of uh, medina who for so many years persistently thwarted his designs and resisted his authority know the clemency with which he received submissive advances of tribes that before had been the most hostile even in the hour of victory so this is something that is william muir has said mm-hmm. and reverend boswell smith vindicates uh, the holy prophet's uh, right to rule as um, he did in the following verse he says head of the state as well of the, uh, of the church he was caesar and pope in one but he was pope without the pope's pretensions and caesar without the legions of caesar without a standing army without a bodyguard without a palace without a fixed revenue if ever a man had the right to rule by divine right it was muhammad for he had all the power without the instruments and without its supports and then he adds something which is very telling he says on the whole the wonder is not how much but how little under different circumstances muhammad differed from himself 
in the shepherd of the desert, in the Syrian trader, in the solitary of Mount Hira, in the reformer, in the minority of one, in the exile of Medina, in the acknowledged conqueror, in the equal of the um, of the full of uh, the equal of uh, Persian Khosros and Greek Heraclius, we can still trace substantial unity. I doubt whether any other man whose external conditions change so much ever himself changed less to meet them. So his conduct, his um, uh, standards remain the same no matter what uh, um, standard of life his actually his life passed him. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. He did not become arrogant with power or um, become uh, more, uh, what is it, dominating as a result. You do not relate the life of Prophet Muhammad with wealth and extravagance mm. at all, at any time of his life, yeah. is what Reverend Boswell Smith is pointing out here. Look. Yeah. What about his overall impact? Had he been acknowledged by many, especially since he was able to emerge from so many perils as you just pointed out? Uh, any examples you can give? Well, um, yes, there are three. Um, uh, first, uh, Karen Armstrong writes, when he began his mission, a dispassionate uh, observer would not have given him a chance. The Arabs he might have objected uh, uh, were just not just ready for monotheism. They were not sufficiently developed for this uh, sophisticated vision. In fact, to attempt to introduce it on a large scale in this violent, terrifying society would be extremely dangerous and Muhammad would be lucky to escape with his life. Indeed, Muhammad was frequently in deadly peril and his survival was a near miracle. But he did succeed. By the end of his life, he had laid an axe to the root of the chronic cycle tribal violence that afflicted the region and paganism was no longer a going concern. The Arabs were ready to embark on a new phase of the history. And uh, the second is in uh, Sir John Bagot uh, Glub. He picks up on the perils that the Holy Prophet had to pass through. He says, when the fugitives had whispered goodbye, and this is quite poetic in the mm. way he describes it, when the fugitives had whispered goodbye to Abu Bakr's son and daughter outside the cave of Mansar, Mount Saur, and the camels had padded silently away into the darkness beneath the sharp Arabian stars. The curtain rose on one of the greatest dramas of human history. How little did the Caesar or Khosrows, surrounded by their great armies and empires and engaged in a long and bitter war for the world's supremacy, as they thought, realized that these four ragged Arabs riding silently through the bare mountains of the Hejaz were about to inaugurate a movement which would put an end to both the great imperial dominions. Yeah, uh, Karen Armstrong has written a lot of books on Islam, yes. although she's, not a, she's yes. from a Roman Catholic background, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and so John Baggett there with the final words there. Any other examples, a final example you could yes, give uh, on this? Uh, because it's an important aspect of mm, the Holy Prophet. Mm. But they went through so many phases, mm. and yet he remained the same, yeah. you know, instead of status. Yes, uh, this is from the pro uh, Professor Lamartin, a uh, French historian. Uh, well-known uh, philosopher, right? says philosopher, orator, apostle, legislator, warrior, conqueror of ideas, restorer of rational dogmas, the founder of twenty terrestrial empires, <coughs> and one spiritual empire, that is Muhammad. As regards all standards by which human greatness may be measured, we may ask: Is there any man greater than he? If greatness of purpose, smallness of means, and outstanding results are the three criteria of human genius. Who could dare to compare any great man in modern history with Muhammad? 
the most famous men created arms and empires only. They founded, if any at all, no more than material power which often crumbled away before their eyes. This man merged not only armies, legislation, empires, peoples and dynasties, but millions of men in one-third of the inhabited world, and more than that, moved the altars, the gods, the religions, the ideas, the beliefs, and and the souls on the basis of a book, every letter of which has become law. He created a spiritual nationality of every tongue and of every race. A great epitaph, mm. if you ask me. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, he's fi- not a Muslim. And he's not a Muslim, mm. as, as none of these are the ones that you've quoted. Mm. Uh, what about uh, there, was, there would be a yearning in the West, uh, as we've seen from the census, that Christianity is dropping down, Islam has gone on the mm. up. So there, there definitely must be a rise in the West, a yearning for some knowledge. Uh, have any prominent people commented from the West of, you know, of the, of the mm. political world even? Yes. Um, <coughs> um, we have, <coughs> excuse me, the um, the quote of uh, George Bernard Shaw. He's a Nobel laureate. Um, and he wrote that I have studied him, he's uh, the Holy Prophet, referring to the Holy Prophet. And he says, the wonderful man, in my opinion, far from being an antichrist, he must be called the saviour of humanity. I believe that if a man like him, George Bernard Shaw says, I believe that if a man like him were to assume the dictatorship of the modern world, he would succeed in solving his problems in a way that would bring in much needed peace and happiness. And he goes on to state, I have prophesied about the faith of Muhammad that it would be acceptable to the Europe of tomorrow mm-hmm. as it is beginning to be acceptable for the people of for the Europe of today. Now, he's not uh, alone in this. Uh, Thomas Carlyle uh, was of a similar view, uh, and he wrote, Europe has begun now to sense the wisdom of Muhammad and has developed a passion for his religion. It will also come to exonerate Islamic doctrine for all the false accusations laid at his door by Europeans in the Middle Ages. The religion of Muhammad will be the system upon which peace and contentment will be founded. From his philosophy, Europe will derive the solution to perplexities, problems and complexities. Many of my fellow countrymen and other Europeans venerate the teachings of Islam. Hence, I confirm my prophecy by saying that the first stirrings of the age of European Islam are near. This is inevitable. Yes, the world today is in dire need of a man like Muhammad to solve its complex problems. And referring to the abuse that is inflicted on the Holy Prophet at that time and even today, he says a silent great soul, one that who could not but be earnest, he was to kindle the world as the maker of the world had ordered so. The lies which well-meaning zeal has heaped round this man are disgraceful to us only. And finally, on the need of Islam, uh, for the West, there is one quote that is attributed to Napoleon. He says that, uh, I hope uh, the time is not far off when I shall be able to unite all the wise and educated men of all the countries and establish a uniform regime based on the principles of the Quran, which alone are true and which alone can lead men to happiness. This is Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes, uh, you've quoted some 
very eminent um, Westerners, I would say. Mm. Um, be it Sir Thomas Carlyle. Thomas L. Carlyle was a thinker, an mm. essayist, and a, a great influence uh, in the 19th century yeah. in literature and philosophy. He was Scottish. Uh, you mentioned Napoleon, you mentioned George Bernard Shaw, uh, Professor Lamartine, uh, and so forth. And the list goes on. These mm. are, I presume, a few selections. Yeah. But it just shows you that when people really look into the lies in a neutral way, they will come out um, uh, more knowledgeable about the truth of the Holy Prophet. Mm. Because this is what it's demanded of our society, the truth, is it not? It is. And and there is, it seems to be there's a movement. Uh, there was one in the uh, 19th and 20th century that besmirched Islam. Mm. And there's also a movement that is besmirching Islam today. I mean, in the 19th and 20th century, we were told Islam was spread by the sword. Mm. Now we're told that Islam is a violent religion. It promotes violence. Mm. So there is this... Uh, trend that uh, we have to buck. Yes, indeed. And, th and thank you very much for enlightening us with those information and uh, the articles that you read out. So that was the life of the Holy Prophet. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, Vilith, for an in-depth study on the life. And uh, we look forward to the next episode yeah. on the continuing journey of not gaining knowledge. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, uh, peace be upon you all. Welcome back to the Weekend World Show on Voice of Islam. Uh, you can share your thoughts and views by phoning 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. All right, Walid, let's move mm. on to our next segment of the show, which is, of course, Behind the Headlines. Just been called for Donald The decision Trump. taken to join the common market has been the reversed. should call a general election. Order. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the headlines. وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ مُحِيطًا Chapter 4, verse 1 to 7 of the Holy Quran. And to Allah belongs all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth. And Allah encompasses all things. Well, with the latest uh, info, uh, census uh, from the British public, it seems like uh, belief in God is diminishing, particularly within the Christian mm. church. Um, and the verses that were just played talks about that everything belongs to God Almighty, and yet we are rejecting him. Yeah. So um, looking at the report, this is uh, from a religious news service, which is a Christian newspaper. It says that Christians, a minority in England, non-religious grow. So they recognize that there's a growth in non-religion. Fear that half the people in England and Wales consider themselves Christian, <clears throat> according to the most recent census. The first time a minority of the population has f followed the country's official religion. Britain has become less religious and less white. In the decade since the last census, figures from the 2021 census released Tuesday by the Office of Statistics, or the National Office of Statistics, <clears throat> What else do they say? Well, some 46.2% of the population of England and Wales described themselves as Christian on the day of the 2021 census, down from 59.3% a decade earlier. 
the Muslim population grew from 4.9% to 6.5% of the total, while 1.7% identified themselves as Hindu, up from 1.5%. More than uh, one in three people, that's 37%, said they had no religion, up from 25% in 2011. Yes, Andrew Copson, chief executive of the charity Humanist UK, said the dramatic growth of the non-religious has made the UK almost certainly one of the least religious countries on earth. One of the most striking things about these results is how at odds the population is from the state itself, he said. Right, let's have a quick listen at uh, what some people have said. Now, the latest census data has revealed just how much the population of England and Wales is changing. For the first time, less than half describe themselves as Christian. In 2011, it was nearly 60%. Now it is down to 46%. There was a rise in those reporting no religion, now more than 37%. And a million more people identified as Muslim, taking the proportion to 6.5%. Yes, that was uh, the breaking of the information coming from the UK census, broken down. Uh, joining us this morning to discuss this topic good is Sheikh Rahman. Sheikh Rahman is a human rights activist and in particular the persecution of the Amdi Muslim community in Pakistan and around the world. Good morning. Salaam alaikum, Mr. Sheikh Rahman. Good morning. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you for joining us uh, on this Sunday morning. Uh, Thank you very kindly for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Sheikh, what, uh, what are your initial thoughts on this survey that the UK is now a minority... Uh, sorry, Christianity now in the UK is a minority faith? Uh, yes, I think the, uh, the minority faith reflects the fact that people of faith, the statistics have proved that people of non-faith has actually increased. Ah. And that shows the fact that the uh, that religion does not play such a significant role in people's lives anymore, anymore as opposed to when it used to do, um, what it used to do during the times of, um, uh, I mean, earlier times, I suppose. Um, affluence has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, once people become slightly affluent, um, religion kind of stays away from their from their lives, and I think a major portion, a major part of what has what has made people move away from religion has been <clears throat> the fact that the that they believe that the laws that have been enacted in Parliament. Um, and, and these are not morality laws, these are laws that protect the rights of citizens, are in fact better and better explained and better implemented by the courts in the United Kingdom um, in order to give them the protection that the moral laws of, of the Christian churches would have done. Mm. Uh, in, in, in that regard, I mean, Jesus himself, peace be upon him, when... Uh, when when asked this question, it was, it was an attempt to trap him uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, should one follow the religion or should one follow the law? And mm -hmm. he said uh, very cleverly that uh, lend to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and lend to God what belongs to God. So he said the two go hand in hand. But what you are trying to say is that there is now a greater emphasis 
that uh, what you lend to God is no longer or is less relevant now, and uh, lending to your authorities is is far greater. I'm not sure if that is the case. I think what is, what is the the fact is that people feel a lot more comfortable mm. in order to resolve their issues in court, right? And and get and get to believe um, the laws that the, the law actually works in this country, um, and they they find they they consider that justice will be done better mm. in this country if they if there is a situation which actually allows them to to resolve these these matters in court as opposed to what morality has taught them sure. um, or religion has taught them in general yeah. but religion and they've moved go on, go on, carry on. and hence they've moved away from uh, i mean obviously religion is is there are two aspects to religion one is that it's your relationship with god mm which I don't think has diminished as a result of people not being uh, registered as Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, people still believe in, in faith, people still believe in God, uh, but it's the implementation of the, of the you know, and the distance has been created because of that. Yeah. Um, that families which actually were very, very uh, church-going, were, were very religious, um, have unfortunately, and I think affluence also has a has a bit to do with yeah. that. Uh, we, me and Waleed were discussing this uh, gambit in the uh, earlier part of the show, uh, mm-hmm. at the beginning. And one of the things Waleed was saying was that uh, when when you start presenting religion as a uh, a non factual uh, uh, aspect of of the belief and and more on fairy tales or or things that are hard to believe. It does turn people away from that aspect of God. Absolutely, I agree with him. And not only the fairy tale bit. I think it's also the implementation of the of the of the religious values mm. that are instilled in people. It's not just going to the church on a Sunday morning and or to the mosque for Friday prayers. It's also the moral question, which is very important. It's your relationship with your, with your children, with your wife, with the wife by the society, um, and does all of that actually affect your, um, your your own demeanor hmm. in terms of, of of the fact that are you actually free to do all of that without impacting uh, on on your religious beliefs or your moral beliefs? I think truth always has been and will always be um, the, the, the guiding principle. Yeah. When, uh, when I was a young lad, I, I might have related this story, that I, I went to my school assembly and there was a lot of Muslim boys and other boys, non-religious, outside, not going into the assembly. I was only 10 or 11 years old. And when I came out of the assembly, I was told by those boys not to go in there. It's a Christian assembly, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, it's, cough, it's being coffee if you go in there and things like this. And when I went home and discussed it with my dad, you know, what should I do? And he said, look, you, you don't, don't you dare sit outside that room. You go inside the assembly because the things they will talk about will yeah. be the good moral values of faith. And that is common yeah. to them and as it is in Islam. So there's nothing wrong with you being in there. The only thing you have to do is when they pray to their God, you pray in your own language to yourself, yeah. to Allah. And uh, and that was a great lesson that I learned from my father. Now, are the Christian church failing Christians in preaching good values, 
but not acting on them because there's been a lot of controversies within the Christian church. Pedophilia with priests and, and the way children have been treated and, and the way they deal with, with abused women, etc. Absolutely right. That is exactly the point that I was trying to make in a broader sense. Mm. That, that, that is exactly what is happening. So that faith uh, that, people, that people relied on yeah. and, and, and they thought that, you know, we'll get justice um, in, within the community, within the, the church surroundings, um, and so on and so forth, has gone away. Yeah. And I think a large part of it is also, and this is also true, by the way, of the Muslim faith and the Hindu faith and so on and so forth, that the division within faiths mm. has also diminished the belief systems. Mm. Um, because there's so much division, you know, and rather than them coming together and, 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 and doing the common values like, you know, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community the, encourages interfaith meetings. Mm. And we learn of the good things from all religions. And we, we actually basically develop those community relationships. Sure. Well, that, that's a, a great point, isn't it? That when they see religion uh, at odds with each other, Mm. Uh, you know, unless you're a Christian, you can't go to heaven. Unless you're a Muslim, you can't go to heaven. Unless you're a Hindu, you can't go to heaven. If they present religion as that, as a as conflict within each other, mm. uh, people will tend to run away from that. Absolutely, and um, they do a disservice to religion. Um, and to their own faith. And yeah. to their own faith, because there's a lot that is held in common by these faiths, mm. much more than what divides them. Yeah. And focus should be made on uh, what unites them, yeah. um, so that uh, people um, become more aware and are able to promote their own personal spirituality through religion. Mm. I mean, that's what what religion offers primarily, doesn't it? At, at the end of the day, it's your personal relationship. Mm. So, what, how does that interact with the wider community? Mm. Uh, and and we saw that particularly, Sheikh Rahman, in uh, during COVID, how faith was so proactive in bringing some sort of relief in the hardships that we had during those two years uh, through the food banks that the Christian groups organized through the Amdiya Muslim community and other Muslim organizations who reached out to the NHS, to the police authorities, to those in need, those elderly who couldn't get food. The faith communities really came to the fore. In fact, the success story, if anything, if there's one success, success story out of the pandemic, is the way the faith uh, communities reached out. Absolutely right, because I think they showed in practice that they care. Mm. And, and that care bit was so prominent, um, which of course is, and it was all charitable. So it, it, everybody came together. They actually tried to help their neighbors, the wider, the wider society in general, and, and also, and where, where the government did not play that part. Um, the faith communities, I think, were definitely very much so in the forefront of doing those, getting in together and doing those services, mm. and all at their own financial and human cost. Right, right. So that was a great, great uh, effort, I think, and, and may, may it long continue. I hope it does. Uh, but of course, it diminishes with time. It so. does. It does. Uh, let's listen to a little clip from uh, the th director of Theos. It's a think tank on religion. Uh, this is d the director, Elizabeth Oldfield. Do you think um, that Danny Kruger is right? Are we faith phobic? Are we pushing religion out of public life? Or are people right to worry 
uh, about increasing the role of faith groups in our increasingly secular society? I don't think there's a kind of sinister plot to push religion out of public life. What I think is happening is we're getting more diverse, we're getting more plural. You know, church going is no longer the default. It just makes it more likely that people won't know any religious people. So they might not understand what they believe and they're just receiving media messages perhaps rather than actually being able to encounter people in relationships. And on the same part of the same problem is religious people maybe feel a bit less confident. They maybe feel like because they're not so mainstream anymore, they don't know how to explain what they believe and all the amazing work they're doing in their communities. So there just is a bit of fear and a lack of understanding. What we're seeing up and down the country in up to 100 different case studies that we've been going to in the last few years doing research is actually when people partner together across these differences, which are really normal in a plural society, they're doing amazing work. So faith communities, working with local councils, working with other charities, working with schools, you know, tackling holiday hunger, tackling debt and joblessness, as well as food banks, which we all know about. Yeah, uh, something we've been discussing today that uh, faith communities are doing a lot. Uh, joining us now is Dr. Sandra Ismail. He's involved in research projects at the University of Liverpool and Lancaster University in risk factors of dementia in ethnic minority groups in the United Kingdom. Dr. Ismail, welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much for joining us on Voice of Islam. I hope you are able to listen to some of the discussions we've been having. We just played a little clip from uh, uh, doc, uh, from the director of Theos uh, and talking about the good works that the faiths have done over the pandemic. Now, you are dealing with ethnic minorities, the risk factors related to dementia, etc., did, does, in your search, research, does religion still play a key role in ethnic minority groups in the UK? Um, thank you for the question. That's a very important question. And actually, that's one of the greatest motivation of me getting into this area of research, hmm. particularly looking at the way um, religion and ethnicity influences the health of people and my specialty in terms of health is in um, dementia. So, you know, um, I think largely when we look at religion, we are looking at it from the very sacred point of view. Uh, you know, talking about the spiritual aspects when it comes to religion. Mm -hmm. But we do know that religion goes beyond that. You know, what religion actually does is that it defines a particular social identity of which helps us to form particular communities in our society. And I was very glad that examples were mentioned about the way religious communities, you know, and when we talk about that when it comes to religion, we're talking about communities, mm. people coming together and being binded based on their subscription to a particular belief and faith, actually helping to, you know, to solve wider societal problems, such yeah. as what we saw, we, we, we saw during COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, when you then look at religion from that standpoint of view, and you can see the Ahmadiyya Muslim community doing a great deal when it comes to that, you know, such as having charitable groups and going out during Christmas, you know, yeah. and all that and other festive occasions to help the society. You can see that in that regard, we are extending the religious arm into that community. Okay. It's the humanity arm, um, isn't it? It's the humanity side of religion that is being uh, uh, sort of uh, put in place. 
Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I'll, I'll come to that in a minute in terms of how that actually perhaps may be explaining these recent census um, results that we are getting. Yeah. But, but particularly with my research, looking at it from, you know, um, an intersection between religion and the ethnicity point of view. So what you can see from the census data is that um, although we are seeing a reduction in the proportion of people who identify themselves as Christians, yeah. we are seeing some increase in the proportion of people who identify themselves with other religious groups. Mm. Okay, so we are seeing increase in, in the Islamic state, um, for example, in the, in the UK. What is also clear is that um, there is a very strong association between ethnic identification and religious subscription, mm. of which some of the, we know that some of the minority um, religious groups, most people within those groups are from um, ethnic minority backgrounds. You know, for example, in the Islamic group, you have a lot of, you know, South Asian populations, for example, yeah. in that particular group. <clears throat> now, um, we do know that religion itself, as a social identity, on its own, unfortunately, exposes people to adverse health, you know, effects. You know, for example, we know that Muslims in the UK are highly discriminated, you know, against. Mm -hmm. um, we've had um, evidence from uh, national data showing that they are less satisfied with their health and the sort of health care that they receive in society. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we also know that certain ethnic minority populations, such as, you know, South Asians and, you know, black minority ethnic groups, for example, also face certain disadvantage when it comes to their health yeah. and access to resources that can improve their health. Sure. Now, put these two hands together, you are having an intersection of ethnicity and religion here among people who are very disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And... I am seeing that, you know, um, that is from my perspective that, you know, if you look sure. at these two uh, and, and look at how it affects people in the community, then it makes religion a very important variable, if you like, to look at. Yeah. But rather looking at it from the kind of community perspective, right. not only from the spiritual angle. Okay. Let me, let me bring Sheikh Rahman back in here again, Sheikh. Uh, <coughs> Dr. Sanda says that... Uh, uh, religions are growing, some of the ethnic minority, but Christianity is diminishing, and, and the role that these faiths, all of the faiths have played. What sort of increase has caused, for example, Muslims, the largest growth of all the religions here? Uh, is this from uh, just from the natural growth, or is it because of conversions, or is it because more people have emigrated and brought their faith from their heritage lands? I think the latter of the two. Um, the, the, the fact that there's been more um, immigrants coming here yeah. um, and also having more children, um, less conversions. So we've really got to very, very, we've got to be very careful now. I understand what the doctor just said, and I appreciate that that is what is happening. Remember, when the, when the immigrants come together, uh, they start living in social ghettos together. So they interact with each other more than they interact with the wider society. Now the fear is, and this is a very serious fear, that when these children who are born here, who are brought up here, and who are now possibly in the third generation mm -hmm. scenario, mm -hmm. 
what what are they are they going to remain within the social bounds of our own communities or whether they will mix and interact more with the wider society um and when that happens um will that drive them away from religion or not yeah. so it's it's too early to say whether that will happen or it won't happen um but that is what needs to be done exactly it yeah. does need to be done yeah. and hence i think the statistics reflect that at the moment yeah what will the next statistic involve in t- 10 years from today mm. uh, who knows mm. um, because obviously remember the younger generation um, who have gone to school here who are going to university who are going to college and then they're going into jobs over here are drifting away from their own families i mean we've seen quite a few examples of that happening already mm. and and that is because the social circle of these children has widened as opposed to the first generation Indeed, um, of immigrants who, who, who get yeah social ghettos they live in social ghettos and so hence correct yeah, yeah. Let, let me bring dr ismail back in again uh, dr ismail you you work with dementia um with the ethnic minorities particularly doing some research into that and in terms of uh, the, uh, the way the ethnic minority groups um coordinate themselves or are helping people within the communities is that helping towards alleviating dementia in these ethnic minorities because role of religion has played a major part in in the ethnic minorities and the census is showing that um yes thank you um, i think this is actually a very missed opportunity to be honest and this is something that we don't know much about here so one of the things that we don't know much about in terms of um, the data is how much uh, you know our religious communities okay can actually inform the way we improve the health of ethnic minority groups in our community so this is still something that is very under research We are seeing clues over here, and for example, from the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen how um, religious communities have been very useful in actually um, helping people, especially ethnic minority groups, during the pandemic. So, in terms of my research, this is a very underexplored area, and that's one of the things that I am um, looking at to see how we can explore and utilize religious institutions. as opportunities to improve the health and well-being of ethnic minority groups. Mm. Uh Sheikh Rahman, uh in terms of what Dr. Ismail was saying about the good work that the communities are doing and living and you were commenting on the social ghettos which uh, which encourage people to stay within the community but as they widen up there's a risk of them breaking up. in terms of the amdi muslim community during uh, these pandemic period they did a lot of work for the community for themselves and for the wider community so the communities can work on the wider community without losing the footage uh, as as you you could say of their own beliefs i think the amdi muslim community is a great example of how uh, by the grace of god uh, they they actually reacted i wouldn't say reacted but actually commendable efforts and work that they did not only to help their own members and particularly the older members but also the wider society so your neighbors your friends and you know the 
the, the wider society in general. Mm-hmm. So even giving up their time to go and work in food banks, to go and deliver food, medicine, etc., etc., and all at their own cost. Um, I think the it is a, a, a prime example of how a community, be it small or big, it doesn't matter, how they actually really came together and helped each other and interacted with other communities as well. So with other religious groups as well. So that was a, a, yeah. a great example and must be must be really publicized and given the, the due uh, publicity so that it actually encourages others to mm. do the same. And, and very quickly on this, uh, is it a case where because of the communal efforts and the communal togetherness, that the faith remains strong and maybe Christianity has lost that aspect uh, where people are very much left on their own, very much left individually, and hence they will not be attracted to religion anymore? Um, possibly, but uh, not entirely. Mm. I think that that may be a factor. Um, remember that the Christian community now, uh, I mean, the younger generation, of course, I think because of affluence and things, and and the and the less um, interaction with the church have realized that you know the church is not doing much for them anyway. Yeah. So they've got, they've become kind of liberal in their thought process, and and I think the most important thing is that justice is being administered outside of the social norms of uh, religion. Okay. And and that has to be brought back. Right. Uh, back to you, Dr. Ismail, in terms of the work that you do in this research for dementia in ethnic minorities, what do you find in your research? What are the key points that gel communities together and how can they help towards alleviating the issues around dementia? Um, right, excellent. I mean, one of the things that we know about dementia that you might already be aware is that it is a condition that has no cure. Mm. Um, so there is no medicine to cure dementia. So once you have it, it's going to be a continuous process of deterioration until, until you die, unfortunately. So one of the key ways of tackling dementia is actually to prevent it in the first place. To be able to prevent something, you need to understand what is causing it in the first place. Now, what we do know is that there are several causes of dementia. So things such as low level of education, um, hearing loss, um, things such as cardiovascular um, you know, diseases, diabetes, for example, are all known risk factors among the general population. What we do not understand at this moment is the extent to which these risk factors you know, affect certain religious communities in the UK and in the world in general. Mm. So my research is trying to understand, for example, if we take the Islamic religious community in the UK, are there very specific you know, risk factors or causes of dementia associated with this religious community that we don't find in another religious community such as Christian religious community or Jewish religious community or Buddhist religious community or people who don't actually subscribe to any religion at all. Once we understand those factors, okay, among the various religious communities, then we can see, we can then start thinking about how can we use these religious institutions to help reduce or get rid of these causes of dementia. 
And that is a battle that is going to go on for a long time because uh, dementia is very much increasing. It is. I mean, as the population ages and the UK population has been aging and continues to age, and age is one of the significant risk factors with dementia. Mm. Yes, it's, gonna, it's still going to be a problem and a battle that we're going to be fighting for a very long time. Indeed. Yeah, Sheikh Raman, you were, I think you were trying to come in. Yeah, I was just trying, I was going to ask the question, uh, if, if I have your permission to do Please so. Please go ahead. From the doctor that the, uh, what age group are we talking about in your research, which has been identified as most uh, vulnerable uh, to dementia? Uh, so, the risk of dementia increases as one gets older. Okay, so um, as you do age, um, normally from 50 plus going up, the risk sort of increases. But what we do also know is that the factors that cause dementia, although they manifest in older age, so things such as diabetes and cardiovascular diseases, for example, although we see them in older age groups, but they actually start developing as relatively younger age groups, like people in their early 30s, you know, 40, going upwards. So when we think about preventing dementia, although the risk is high during older age groups, but we're also concerned about the relatively younger age group who will be building these risk factors, which will then manifest later on in old age. So my research currently, I am looking at people aged from um, you know, 50 plus, um, you know, onwards. And does this happen mostly in households of <coughs> which are which are low income or um, people who have less interaction with with society in general, or does it also happen in the affluent as ethnic minority groups? Good question. Um, so what we do know is that some significant factors associated with developing dementia are things to do with um, loneliness you know, and less social interaction. Mm. And also people living in deprived areas compared to yeah. people in less deprived areas, so people living in poor areas compared to rich areas. Um, okay. We do know that these are significant risk factors. Now, when it comes to relating that to religion and ethnicity, we do realize that actually there are certain ethnic groups that are more exposed to these factors. So some ethnic minority groups are more exposed to um, deprivation, living in deprived areas or being in poverty, or actually having less social you know, um, interaction. We are seeing some patterns when it comes to some religious groups as well, largely explained by the proportion of ethnic groups that make up those religious uh, you know, uh, uh, groups. So yes, so those are all um, you know significant risk factors that we, we have you know identified, and this is why religion can come in as a very important factor over here, mm. because as I said, if you look beyond the spiritual connotation of religion, to now look at it as you know um, um, as a community that sort of helps people to come together, that sort of helps with that social interaction yeah. you know among people as well. Yeah, the social interaction. Yes. So the social interaction is really, is, is really key over here. Um, we know that, um, I don't know whether you're aware, but the UK actually is one of the first countries to have a minister for loneliness. So we do have a minister for loneliness, just telling us how loneliness 
is a great problem in the UK. Mm. Okay. And this is as a result of people not being able to have those social connections that they wish they want to have in society. Right. Okay. This is one of the things that religion can help resolve in society. And that is why it's very concerning that if you then have um, a religious majority group such as Christianity declining in terms of the number of people who subscribe to this religion, and we have this issue of loneliness going up, and religion actually being a potential factor that can help bridge this, then that becomes concerning when we look at this data. Hmm. And of course, when you relate it to dementia, it just even gets worse. Right, gentlemen, um, due to time, we're going to have to bring this discussion to close. Thank you very much for your contributions. Uh, Sheikh Rahman took over as the host, I think, with the questions that you, very, very pertinent, <laughs> very, but very, Sorry, import, yeah. <laughs> very important and pertinent questions that you were asking. Uh, and uh, Dr. Say Ismail, thank you, uh, uh, Sanda Ismail, sorry. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, keep up the good work that you are doing. Um, and same with you, Sheikh Rahman. Thank you, Asanda. You're welcome for having me. Very kind, yes. Thank you so Indeed. much. Thank you. Right, Thank Willie, you. Uh, we're going to move on to the World Cup now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We need some light-hearted stuff going on. But, <coughs> but the competition's getting tough. Oh, yes. Yeah, a bit more mm. tense. It's getting mm. very intense. Weekend World. Sports Review. Right. Uh, Gentlemen, assalamu alaikum. This is Shahid Khan, our ex-England international, now a journalist, and Saf Hamdi, regularly features on the show discussing sports, politics, and religion. Good morning, gentlemen. Assalamu alaikum. Can you hear me, Shahid? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Indeed. Yeah, Saf, can you hear me? Oops, we might have an issue with Saf, but let's start with Shahid. Uh, Shahid, uh, we're into the knockout stage. Uh, of the World Cup. <clears throat> I just wanted to discuss, first of all, <clears throat> that amongst all the politics that has gone around the World Cup, with Qatar in particular, um, and the football has eventually taken centre stage, and rightly so, uh, do you th how do you think Qatar has performed as a host overall? I, I think uh, in terms of uh, what people are expecting, was in terms of off the field or when you talk about actually how the country itself has fared? No, no, I think the whole thing comes together, doesn't it? The World Cup and it's held, obviously, uh, the pol politics came into the equation, which I, right. I, I personally feel should not have. Um, mm -hmm. But they've, they've had to counter that and run the, and, and run the World Cup. So when, when a person is looking at the World Cup overall, has how has that come across to an individual? Has the World Cup performed? Has it has Qatar performed? I think so. Yeah, I, I think it has become one of the most outstanding ones from my from my point of view. I think, in terms of the publicity and the adverse publicity that put that was there beforehand and at the beginning of the, the tournament as well. Oh. I think everything has been turned positive. I think more attention has been paid on the field as well and the, the teams and the. I mean, let's not forget the infrastructure and so forth being within so close proximity of each other, the stadiums and that. And that has, I think, added to this degree not being so far-flung. I mean, it's a small country, it's only about 3 million people in all. In all. Uh, but in terms of actual uh, positiveness from the football itself, I think the World Cup has given it a focus on it, and even off the field with regards to the controversies and that. And I wouldn't say they've died down, but at least I think they put on the back burner for the moment. And mm. I think as, as a whole... 
I think Qatar has come out quite well. Yeah. Uh, Saf, are you online? Uh, we got Saf online. Saf, uh, yeah. I don't know if you heard what Shahid was saying. We were just asking generally how the World Cup has come across. Uh, yeah. uh, there's a lot of politics around it, but uh, as Shahid is saying, that Qatar has counteracted that very well and uh, mm. let football do the talking. And I think the FIFA president, uh, Gianni Interfani, took a very positive role in that statement and changed that attack on Qatar into football. Um, how has the World Cup fared, a Winter World Cup? Is that something that could happen for, again in the future? Or is the Summer for World Cup still the best thing forward? I mean, I think, yeah, we, we look at it from a Western perspective, right? We, we, we sort of, uh, I would actually argue, I'm not really sure why we in Europe or in the Americas believe that we are owed football in summer. Um, it's supposed to be a global game and surely the fact that there is a country that could actually afford to hold it and was willing to do so, and it's actually, from, from by all accounts, has actually done a very good job in doing so. Hmm. Um, uh, you, you know, you have to sort of take your hat off to them and uh, and say that, yes, this is, uh, this is not, it's not been a bad thing. I mean, we'll find out, I guess, you know, like how it really affects all of the, um, all of the big leagues, um, uh, you know, in the next coming, uh, in the next coming months, I'm sure. But, uh, uh, it, it's been enjoyable. It's been different, definitely. I mean, it's not you know, not something uh, I, I would say. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it kind of came very sort of slowly, didn't it? I, I mean, I'm not sure. We didn't really have the same fanfare that it usually does, sort of on, in the build-up. But now it's here. Mm. It seems that we that we are fully engaged. Well, I presume uh, the politics was taking centre stage as far as the Western press was concerned. Uh, right. And, I, and again, I think sorry, you can argue with the Western. Press. I mean, yes, I think I think a lot was made out of something. Yeah. Which, uh, let's be frank. Let's uh, you know, it's 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 the football that needs to do the talking. And, Absolutely. Right yes, and, and the organization must have been uh, quite um, uh, well-tuned and uh, faultless. I mean, Parish have thought if something had gone wrong, it would have been all over the papers, wouldn't it? So I think credit should be given to uh, to the organizers for what they've done so far. Now, as far as the, uh, what is going on on the football pitch itself, um, Asaf, do you think... Um, uh, Messi has uh, has risen to the uh, to the challenge. I, I mean, I'm um, I'm in two. I think for me, Messi is technically one of the best players I've ever seen. Um, however, I think he always on a national stage he's kind of fallen short. Yesterday, you have to say was probably one of the best games I've ever seen him play in the World Cup. But then you also take into account it was against Australia. That's my personal opinion. I know there's a lot of there's a lot of people that you know the, the kind of messy debate um, uh, is always quite rife. Um, I, I I think he's a technically I think he's one of the most technically gifted players I've ever seen. But I just don't think that he's really cut it. Um, uh, having uh, having said that, Shahid, Australia are not a bad team. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, before the match, perhaps not much chance was, be, was being given to Australia against Argentina. But the teams have come up. I mean, let's not forget that these people are playing, most of them are playing in the top leagues anyway. Now the players, it's not like in the past when they were being homegrown and home uh, playing in the home leagues mm -hmm. and that. So, uh, from, of course, from that point of view, obviously, I mean, when you talk about Asian teams, Korea, Japan, all the rest of it, African teams, most of the players are playing in top leagues uh, and that obviously all as well and 
with regard to Messi, one thing one, one must not forget, that at his age, and the game has evolved a lot since he first started playing, let's not forget that. The pace of the game now, is, and the grounds and so forth, is totally different to perhaps when he started. And like Saf is saying, I mean, he technically is the best player or has been for a long time. I mean, that's arguable, arguably against with Ronaldo, people say about that. But to play 1,000 games, and that's what he's doing, mm. and to keep mm. performances, keep on giving performances like that, is absolutely fantastic from my point of view. Mm. And uh, Shane, what do you think about uh, England's chances today? Do you think uh, it's a buy as far as uh, facing Senegal is concerned, or are they going to have a <laughs> tough match? I think the pundits have now given up on the predictions, to be honest with you. And for me, I mean, uh, let's not forget, Senegal are African nation champions mm. as well. But the fact that I think they had, they're on the back foot because of uh, money's absence, I think obviously that takes a lot from them. But nevertheless, I mean, they have a team that I think on the day can perform like any other team. England had been good last time. I mean, obviously, their first uh, point of contention was getting out of the group, which, which they did quite comfortably in the end. And one of the few teams that came through unbeaten. But he has used uh, he's used some of his players, uh, so his past leagues, uh, not having used the whole squad on that. And that, it might come to, I mean, if they do win this, they go on to play teams like France and so forth. So they will have to pull out all the stops. And so, as regards your question, whether or not Senegal, it's not a pushover like by any means, any of these, none of these games. Mm-hmm. They found that out. And England just hopes that they're able to push, uh, have, just tip it over today. Mm. So if England has scored the most goals, their, their attack seems quite uh, the strongest at the moment. Uh, this should be a fairly easy win, though, I would have thought, for uh, against Senegal. You mentioned you, I mean, that they have... Oh, sorry, Seth, yes, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, sorry, I was just going to say, I think, yes, on paper, I, I guess, they, you know, they are a stronger side. I completely agree with Richard. I mean, the, the way the games have been sort of coming out recently, you, you really don't want to bet against anyone. And I think long, long gone are those days where, you know, you sort of see teams as a lesser side. But now, you know, now many of those players will be in top league um, and sort of performing uh, relatively well. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think you can count them out. I, I, I don't think this is a foregone conclusion, as some people think, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, we'll see. But I, I do think that the England side is a strong side. I, I will put my hands up for that. I, I think that they, that they, have the, they have the capabilities of going very far. Mm. And, Seth, um, you know, we talked about Messi um, as... Uh, uh, the star that is perhaps uh, going to be uh, in his last World Cup. What about the emerging stars, the Mbappe? Do you think this is the stage when he will uh, he will shine and uh, register his uh, his uh, pedigree? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, he's 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 done relatively well so far. I mean, if you look at the France squad, they do seem, and probably along with Brazil, they probably look look at the two sort of stronger sides. Uh, albeit that Brazil lost the last game with their B team. Um, but, the, you know, like you look at France, you do look at them and they say that they've got strong pedigree. And Mbappe has been um, pulling out performances. You know, you have to say that he he has looked very sort of strong and one of those sort of superstar figures uh, over the last few games. Um, he's, he's definitely one. I mean, you know, if you look across the board, there have been, uh, you've got Alvarez from Argentina. He played, you know, like re- relatively well as a youngster. So you are giving a few of these emerging stars. I, I have this debate with my younger cousins reg, uh, regularly. Mm. I don't see those big superstars like we used to in the old days. I don't know. You don't get those real standout players. I think it's a much more 
Um, it, it, it's a much more athletic game nowadays. The, the, the game is faster. It's more about athleticism rather than skill, um, which, is, which is what makes Messi great, I guess, in, in all of this. You know, like he, he, he does have. He's one of those few players that really does possess mm. that sort of sheer skill. Shai, talking of superstars, there are a few here. Um, we've, we've spoken about Messi. What about Ronaldo, Neymar? Have they been performing well? Uh, I was just going to mention the fact that for me, the only player that has stood out, uh, well, in terms of uh, higher ranks, well, Pepe for me is a player that is absolutely outstanding. That's a player that one player that I watch mm. with very, very care. With regard to Neymar, what I feel is his lack of the time on the pitch, I think it goes against him for the fact that he gets injured, uh, especially in a tournament like the World Cup. That's one of the things that one has to overcome. So if he's going to miss out games like this, I mean, it goes against him for the fact that people have to be able to perform on the bigger stage. And injury sometimes, I think, hampers his, I think also in some other games in the European League and that, where he mm. plays, he's also been absent from the bigger games as well. As a player, obviously, in terms of uh, technicality and so forth, he's, uh, he's among the best. But then the other th- factors that need to be considered, and I think the time on the pitch, I mean, I talk about Harry Kane, he hardly gets injured. I know in the past he had some big injuries, but he still carries on. He, the number of games that he plays compared to others is absolutely phenomenal. And I, for me, you mentioned Ronaldo. He's also in a similar league. He hardly misses any game. I mean, yeah. at his age, to, to be still playing at that, performing that well is absolutely... There are some other also African players as well, Tunisia and all the rest of it, who, I mean, despite being in the late part of the game in the really, uh, end of the careers, they really did perform well and still keeping the game going at that age and against the youngsters was absolutely phenomenal. Roger Miller. Roger Miller. 40-odd, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, hey, yeah, what yeah. about the emerging nations, the, the North African nations, uh, the, um, the Australians the and the Americans playing some very good football? Indeed. I mean, the, the Asian games, for that matter, Korea and uh, mm. Japan, for Sorry, yes, those two as well. Uh, yeah. In terms of physique, and obviously they are a lot different, but their technical know-how, and I think I think that's now it's coming to a stage where we mentioned about the fact it's a global game now, so it's not just uh, not South America and Europe in terms of number of qualifications. Obviously, they are amongst the tops at the moment, and because of strong strong leagues that leagues that we have, uh, but we can't disregard those countries are coming up uh, so well, and I know the players get picked up for these leagues anyway, from those countries as well. Uh, but the African nations as well. I mean, uh, uh, in fact, Algeria didn't even qualify and they were one of the top teams in Africa. So yeah. uh, I think, like it has been said, it's a global game and I think things have to change uh, worldwide. <laughs> we were talking about, I mean, you're talking about uh, emerging nations and uh, those from uh, um, Asia in particular. Uh, <laughs> Japan are playing uh, Croatia tomorrow. Uh, what do you think uh, is going to? Uh, are they going to be able to overcome the European European nation there? Last year, last World Cup semi uh, finalists. Croatia are very good side, I and mean, the midfield is what I like about Croatia. Mm. The three that in the midfield that they have, Modric obviously is pulling strings together, and they are very very strong midfield. But uh, Japan, for that matter, I mean, uh, the last stage uh, they've come through more uh, in a serene way rather than some Japan had to qualify or had to get through uh, uh, at the end. Uh, but I think Croatia might be too strong for them. Well, but Brazil should uh, go through Korea, Steph? <coughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, you'd expect. I mean, I think 
their last game, I mean, uh, you know, one could probably argue had they played their sort of stronger side uh, for their last match, could they have won it? Um, you know, arguably they they should have done. Um, Korea uh, looked very strong. I mean, look, I mean, again, you know, they've got the, they've got some, they've got uh, thing, but I don't think probably again their talent pool um, is, is sort of you know slightly lesser. Uh, in that, so, so you'd expect Brazil to to get through that match, but Korea. I mean, again, I, I would agree with. Uh, sorry, you know, if you look at some of the teams that are now coming through, you can't really make that prediction because no. most of them do come from good pedigree. <laughs> they are playing for big sides, you know, and they do have uh, they do have capabilities. So playing as a team, I think that's going to be the main thing. You know, which team can actually sort of unify themselves and sort of play as a team? I think I think those are the ones that they're going to do well. Look <laughs> at Japan. I mean, and I would say with Japan, for example. They topped a group with uh, both Germany and Spain in it, so I don't think you can count them out against Croatia. I mean, I think they will. Um, I think Croatia should, again, on paper, do well. But Japan have been playing so well as a team mm. that I don't think you can count them out. And Not um, sure. Yeah. What about uh, Morocco, Spain? A good chance for Morocco. Uh, the, the Spain were overdone by Tunisia, weren't they? I think Spain, I mean, Spain, to me, uh, still look very strong when they're playing, but they sort of play a style of, uh, they play a style of football, which, um, you know, that, that sort of passing tiki-taki football um, does well. But if you get a very strong, you know, if you get a team that is well run, um, you know, well structured, they did, they did seem to struggle with that. Um, yeah. And you saw that sort of in their last game. And so, again, I think, you know, if, if, um, are going to be, um, you know, if they, if they are going to sort of have a sure. um, have a strong structure, I think I think Spain may find it difficult. But look, I, I think they they actually also they look like a very strong side to mm. me. I mean, I think they probably faltered a little bit, but sure. um, they they do look like a strong yeah. side. Shade, uh, the last game will be Portugal Switzerland. I think Portugal should handle Switzerland quite well. Should handle, I think, I think right word. But uh, Swiss are by no means a pushover. I keep mentioning not pushovers because every game is is not that easy. And I think end of the day, is that brilliance has to come through in the end. And even teams like England having difficulty against Wales to a certain extent mm. until that first goal goes in, and then after that it's a different game. Can uh, but yeah, Portugal might be strong. Yeah. Can Can England make it to the final? Well, the next game is against France if they win. I mean, if they if both France win. win yeah. So, yeah, it's a, I, there's no easy games. And I think, well, like Safa said, I think they can go deep in the tournament. And the, they have the team. I think the all-round strength, I think, for not for a team, but I think in the last few tournaments has been that. Yeah. And they've become a good tournament side. So one hopes that they can go through. Okay. And on the other side of the group, Saf, will Brazil make it to the final? Or, or will it be Morocco? Portugal, sorry. was predicting Morocco, Morocco and Cameroon final, wasn't he? Oh, Samuel yeah, that's yeah. Right, yeah. So, I'm fifty percent incorrect already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cameroon hasn't got two, but yeah. I think yeah. I mean, Brazil. Look, I think they do look like the strongest side on that side of the draw. Um, you, you know, you would expect. Uh, I, I actually think Argentina and Netherlands will be a, will be a fascinating game because I actually think. Whilst yeah. Netherlands haven't played particularly well, I think you know they they actually could be they, they could be the banana skin for for Argentina. I think you know they 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 again well structured. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it will it will really it will take a bit of uh, magic from Messi. I think okay. to, to try and get through well, that game. Well, still an exciting World Cup, and uh, so we look forward to the other matches. Um, right, coming on to the cricket now, uh, Shahid. First tour in seventeen years. 
Uh, it's been a belter of a pitch for betting, isn't it? Well, uh, you, you say that. I mean, but the approach that England have been putting this this match is absolutely phenomenal. I think it, people have said this might actually change Test cricket for good. I mean, the fact that the way that England have been enterprising and I mean innovative and entertaining at the same time is actually phenomenal for Test cricket. I feel, and you mentioned about the fact that these dead wickets in Pakistan. And I think England have found a way of counteracting it. And having scored 500 runs on the first day, can you imagine that? I mean, people must be, some of the test players must be turning in their graves having heard that. I mean, 500 runs in two days, they might wonder. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he's given a declaration today, Stokes, is something phenomenal. England, at the moment, at the end of the day, was leading 263 runs. I mean, who would expect that even after that first uh, series against Australia when they had this in Rahul Pindi? And the wicket, I think people have said that uh, these are not good for Test cricket. But I feel that this approach that England have started, I mean, to start a game, I mean, uh, first four, uh, the top England openers as well as the Pakistani openers all getting centuries, I mean, it doesn't work well too well for the ballers, for them, unfortunately. No. But in the next second inning, when England needing this uh, 340, or Pakistan needing 343 to win, to start a game without slips is unheard of. And what he's done is, uh, some people think this might be the way to going forward. Everything might be upside down altogether. Mm. So uh, they have to try to counteract whether it's only for this match. It will be interesting to know. Seth, England look favourite with the two of the Centurions going out for under 10. Babur and mm. Shafiq, only mom still there. It's not looking good for Pakistan. I think England have played an outstanding test at the match. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I agree. I, I mean, I think it's, Looks like the writing's on the wall. I think it probably has to be something pretty, uh, 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 pretty uh, amazing <laughs> for, mm. for that to be turned around tomorrow. But yeah, I agree with that. I think you know, like the way that they sort of approached it early on, um, it, it, it's very difficult to sort of see how. Um, and I, you have to take your hat off to England. I think they approached it in the right way, and, they, and, and I think they're going to win um, uh, as a result. Uh, I, I do agree. I'm, I'm not really sure what sort of the future of Test cricket goes. Yeah. Uh, I do think they have to make some changes here because uh, it's, it's, it's getting it's getting to the point that sure. yeah, you know, it, it's getting a little bit ridiculous. Okay. Gentlemen, time is uh, not on our side, so thank you very much, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Uh, thank you for being on the show, uh, Willie. We've had some very good mm -hmm. guests. Sheikh Rahman has been Dr. Sunda. Ismail and Mahmoud Rafiq as well. Uh, this is uh, Asan Amdi and Walid Ahmed on the Weekend World Show. My thanks to our listeners and to our tech team, uh, Zishan and the rest. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.